Good evening and welcome to This Week in Football from the makers of Low Limit Football. I'm your host, Joe Ucello, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Roberto Rojas. And tonight we bring you Group E of the 2022 World Cup. Mr. Rojas, this is an interesting, interesting group. This is the only group that has two defending or two prior champions in the group. We have Spain, Costa Rica, Germany, and Japan here. Uh, this one is, is a is a tricky one to pick, my friend, because you know that Costa Rica um, are very good defensively. They've obviously got uh, Kaylor Navas, who is a world-class goalkeeper. Japan, we've seen them in their warm-ups leading into this World Cup, are quite the defensive and, and disciplined side, um, but can certainly spring a counterattack on you. And then Germany and Spain are kind of known products, right? And and. And, and we've seen a lot of them. We've seen a lot of their players in the Bundesliga and La Liga and around the world. And they're just massive powerhouses. Although Germany, you start to wonder if they are going to be on the front foot going into this World Cup. Spain as well. But I think that their their giantness, right, will will probably carry them through. What do you think of this group as it really becomes a tricky one to pick? Yeah, it really is. I mean, like you said, it's the the group with the it's the only group with the two reigning world not reigning world champions but former champions in Spain and Germany obviously two powerhouses and obviously two favorites to win this world cup as we look at the talent that they have at their disposal and certainly when the group was announced i think all eyes were given to them as to say oh who is going to be the one that's going to qualify out of that group uh, and who's going to win it but this isn't to say that there isn't any um you would say um, pushover from Japan or, or Costa Rica. Remember, Japan are also a side that have always been consistently at World Cups, have done well at World Cups, qualified, and, and definitely have posed some shocks into it, even when everyone was you know, betting against them. And the same for Costa Rica. We remember that run in 2014 where they were pitted in that group with Uruguay, England, and Italy, three former world champions, and ended up going all the way to the quarterfinals, losing on penalty. So, you know, this isn't to say that it's very straightforward, Joe. And, and you know, you know, yes, on paper, you would put Germany and, and Spain as kind of the favorites to do it. But, you know, it's this isn't also to say that Japan and Costa Rica won't be there to spoil the party. And if history has shown at this World Cup, that is definitely capable of, of happening. There's always an upset somewhere where a team just does not where you expect a team to make it out of the group and they don't. And you almost feel like this is the spot where one of the Giants are going to trip up as they head in. So let's uh, let's jump right into it, because first and foremost, we have Germany up and we were joined by Kevin Hatchard. Bundesliga commentator for Talk Sport, part of wafa.com as well, um, and just great, great background knowledge on Germany and the German, uh, the Bundesliga and the German players. So, without further ado, the Kevin Hatchard interview, and joining us now on this week in football to preview Germany as they get set to take on Group E at the 2022 World Cup. Kevin Hatchard from Bundesliga World Feed joins us. Kevin, welcome to the show. It is great to have you on. If we could start out by you giving a rundown as to uh, your ties to covering German football. So I've covered the Bundesliga for well over a decade now. I started off writing um, because I was working for Betfair as a columnist. So I've previewed games in the Bundesliga for probably about 13 years now. And then uh, I was doing some work at TalkSport International uh, for a guy called Tom Rennie, who's on... uh, places like Sirius and TalkSport International now. Uh, He's been my boss for a long time. I'm not sure how happy I am about that, but uh, that's fine. Uh, And uh, he knew that I did Bundesliga. And so he gave me the opportunity uh, to do some radio comms. And then the TV guys 
used to listen to the radio comms on a Sunday. And then they gave me the opportunity to come over to Germany and start doing TV for them. So I've done that for about seven years now. I've got to know the country really well. Uh, I go over there a lot. I'll be in Dortmund in a few days' time for Der Klassiker. I'm lucky enough to be the commentator for Dortmund against Bayern. So, yeah, I'm very defensive of the league, especially when people call it a farmer's league. Uh, not always very happy about that. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's, it's something that's become very important to me. And it was interesting. I was at Wembley for the game between England and Germany. And obviously I was there as an England fan. But my kids have grown up watching Bundesliga, so they've got a bit of an attachment to some of the German players. And it was cool to see them as well. So obviously looking into Germany as a whole at World Cups, obviously I think the the history has to not give any really introductions. Four-time winners obviously has been so successful in this tournament, you know, obviously the second most successful in, in its history. But um, looking at this German national team, obviously they came in to 2018 in Russia as the defending champions, bounced out into the group stage, and I think it was very disappointing to see that. And looking forward into what it was from there to now under Hansi Flick, we saw them compete in the Euros and lose to England in the in the round of 16 over there at Wembley. And, you know, have gotten through, I say, a, a bit of a roller coaster of a, of a ride so far, uh, Kevin. So I'm just curious about what you think of this German team now heading into, into Qatar and, and now just the overall vibe of what you're feeling from them uh, heading into this tournament. I think there's been a big change from 2018. That was a hugely embarrassing performance. You know, Germany had never gone out at that stage before. Hansi Flick had to wait for the job because jo Joachim Löw wanted to carry on. I think he'd earned the right to carry on. I think he'd earned the right to have a crack at the Euros because of the success he'd had with the team and the dedication he'd shown. But I think it became obvious fairly quickly that he was running out of ideas. He was changing formations, changing styles. He became fixated on certain ideas that just didn't work out. And I think if you look at the World Cup qualifying for this particular tournament, that was underlined by the home defeat to North Macedonia when they played OK, but, you know, losing at home to North Macedonia. And that's no disrespect to them because they qualify for the Euros, of course, and they knocked out Italy uh, in the qualifiers for this World Cup. But losing at home to a team of that standing, of that history, was seen as a real blow. And it was seen as a further sign that the team had lost its way under Joachim Löw. I think with Hansi Flick in charge now, you have a team with structure, with and without the ball. You have a team with a clear idea. They want to squeeze up the pitch. They want to play high, high defensive line, counter press when they lose it. And I think in general, there is a better vibe about the camp. Now, whether that's going to translate to winning the tournament, we'll see. But they have a hell of a lot of talent. We know that. It's about whether Flick can find the right balance between attack and defense, just as he did when he was the coach of Bayern. Now, jumping into this group, uh, because it is a, a rather interesting group uh, in Group E, th there is uh, familiarity, at least for Germany. We're, we'll start out with Japan, and I think that high-pressing line that they do want to play under, uh, under Flick is going to be beneficial against a, a Japanese side that we've seen 
uh, is well organized um, and or organized on the counter, organized defensively as well. Uh, the Costa Rican side, they do have familiarity there, opening the 2006 World Cup against that team. Um, you know, a, a World Cup that was played at home. But then, obviously, the big one, the giant in the room, is Spain. And there's plenty of familiarity as these two teams, Spain and Germany, are uh, two giants of European and world football. So, um, you know, I believe this is also the only group that has two champions uh, in it. So that makes another little interesting storyline for that match between Spain and Germany on the 27th of November. How does this group uh, pan out for you, Kevin? How do, how do you think this group plays out as uh, as they work their way through the tournament? Tournament. I think it's a dangerous group because I think you underestimate the other two teams at your peril. I think certainly Japan. I think there's a lot of respect for the Japanese team in Germany because there are so many good Japanese players in Germany. Uh, you only have to look at Eintracht Frankfurt, for example. Makoto Hasebe has had a great career in the Bundesliga for many, many years. And you look at Daichi Kamada, who has been absolutely sensational uh, for Frankfurt in the last year or so. He was a big part of them winning the Europa League. You look at Stuttgart, Wataru Endo has been a massive part of what they've done in the last year or so at the heart of midfield. Hiroki Ito has been doing pretty well at the back. Takuma Asano is not a player that's lit up the league by any stretch, but he had some good performances for Borkum last season. Played especially well against Borussia Dortmund, actually, uh, in that 4-3 win that Borkum had away to Dortmund last season that saw them seal their place in the Bundesliga for this season. So I think there's an acceptance that there are some quality players in that team. Obviously, Germany would expect to go through. They would expect Spain to join them in the knockout rounds and Spain are a very, very dangerous team. But I think what's really interesting about this group is that both Spain and Germany have obvious flaws. Spain, I think have problems defensively. I don't think they find the right pairing at the back. I think Unai Simon, while he's decent with the ball at his feet and is the kind of goalkeeper that Luis Enrique wants, I think does make mistakes. And I think Germany with that press will look to exploit that. And then you wonder about where the goals are coming from. Alvaro Morata, I think, doesn't get the respect he deserves, but he is not a regular goal scorer at this level. Uh, he could be, but, you know, if, if there's a chance in the 95th minute for him to win the game, you wouldn't necessarily put your house on him scoring. So that's a concern too. You look at Germany, and again, I thought what was alarming, I was at Wembley for that game, as I say, between England and Germany. And I thought what was... Alarming, really, about the German performance was how they crumbled defensively. Once England got ahead of steam and once the crowd got behind them, Germany made mistake after mistake after mistake defensively. And if Germany are going to play the Hansi Flick way, that puts a lot of pressure on that back line. Now, I know that Antonio Rudiger wasn't in the team. He is, has become a very important player for them. Uh, and so him staying fit... I think is crucial. And the other thing, just like Spain, who's going to score the goals? Because there are concerns about Timo Werner. I commentated on him recently in the game between Leipzig and Borchum. And he looked razor sharp, scored a couple of goals. But he doesn't always look like that. And he is a confidence player. And Germany will hope he's on a hot streak in the tournament. Now, obviously, looking at the players and, and really, you know, kind of going into there I wanted to start really in goal because obviously I think we've always been accustomed to the likes of Manuel Neuer being the the main 
uh, number one for, for Germany, for Bayern Munich for over a decade now. But we have seen, obviously, where this German side really is strong in depth when it comes to goalkeeper. And I think the one name that certainly you can call really a, a successor to Neuer, even though Neuer isn't really exactly slowing down anytime soon, is Marc-Andre Ter Stegen at Barcelona. So given the fact that, you know, this is a team that's still strong in depth when it comes to, to goalkeeping, do you still see uh, Neuer keeping that number one spot, even though he does get, he is getting a bit older now and, you know, starting to get into the twilight of his career? Or do we see someone like Ter Stegen getting that opportunity finally as the main number one for this World Cup? No, 100% it's going to be Neuer. Uh, and there are various reasons for that. He's not made the best of starts to the season, although I thought he was excellent against Leverkusen in the other night. He is still the goalkeeper that has that aura. And yes, he does make mistakes. Yes, he does get caught out now and again, coming a long way from his penalty area. But he's, you know, played a big role in modernising goalkeeping. And I still think his awareness, his starting position... His ability to claw away shots that you were convinced were going in. His command of the penalty area are still unsurpassed when it comes to German goalkeepers. I think Tostegen's a brilliant backup. I think he's somebody that you would call upon if Neuer was injured. But for me, there's absolutely no doubt that Neuer starts as Germany's number one at the World Cup. I agree as well. Now, looking at obviously this talented crop of players that Germany has, I mean, obviously you could look at kind of the, the, the players that have always been there for Germany, like the likes of Thomas Muller and, and you know, Joshua Kimmich as well, who's you know, only 27. But looking at some of the players as well that are coming up, like a Kai Havertz, you know, uh, obviously like a Florian Wirtz as well, by Leverkusen, and, you know, you know he hasn't played for, for Germany in quite some time. But, you know, you look at someone like Jamal Musiala as well. I mean, you know, Kevin, just really looking at this German squad, if they are going to be successful and really you know, kind of the mainstays for this team moving forward, you know, which player or players, I should say, um, will be kind of fundamental for that success uh, at Hansi Flick's side? Well, I think you start with the midfield because they have incredible quality in that central midfield area. I think he'll play two. And the choice he's got to make really is, is it going to be Kimmich and Goretzka, who are a very familiar pairing, for Bayern, of course. Or is it going to be Kimmich and Gundogan? Because Gundogan was instrumental in Manchester City winning the Premier League title last season. Player that Pep Guardiola rates very, very highly. I was very impressed with what he did against England the other night. And he is somebody that just has that ability on the ball that gives him a bit more time. The only question I would have, really, is if you have Kimmich and Gundogan in there, do you have enough drive from that midfield area? And that's what Goretzka gives you, that physicality, that ability to drive into the penalty area. I think the concern over Goretzka is the injuries he's had. He had a knee operation in Innsbruck in, uh, in the summer, and he's hopeful that that's cleared up the problems that he had last season. He's just come back from a bout of COVID. He looks strong against Leverkusen as a substitute, but he's no longer the guaranteed starter that he was for either Germany or Bayern because Marcel Zabitzer is having a much better season this time around. They've signed Ryan Kravenberg from Ajax and I think he's got potential to challenge as well. So that's a big decision for him to make. Musiala, I'm glad you mentioned because I think he's one of the most exciting young players in Europe. I think for a guy of 19, for him to be scoring goals, making goals and dictating play in the way that he is, is really quite phenomenal. 
He has incredible dribbling ability. He's got an eye for a pass. He's got technique when he shoots. He's improved his work in the air. And he just has this real aura about him. And I think there's a real desire for him to improve. So he could be one of the, one. I mean, I say under the radar, guys like us probably know about him a lot, but there'll be a lot of cas- more casual fans who come to the World Cup and see him playing for Germany and think, wow, this guy's really, really good. So I think he's exciting. I'm a massive Kai Havertz fan. I think he showed what he could do against England in the second half with that magnificent long-range goal. I think his confidence has been knocked by what happened towards the end under Thomas Tuchel at Chelsea, but he's still got enormous quality. And then you've got real, you know, really explosive players in Serge Gnabry, Leroy Zane. So they've got loads of options in behind the striker. My concern is, who is that spearhead? Because if it's going to be Werner, that's fine, because he can stretch opposition defences, but he's going to have to be more consistent in front of goal. You know, it's funny, the, the names that you mentioned in terms of Gundogan and Kai ha- I'm sorry, not even Havertz, uh, Joshua Kimmich and, and Leon Goretzka, these are like first world problems for, for footballing managers to have that type of quality to select from. It's just, uh, it's amazing how deep this German side is. But it's interesting you say that, and I agree with you to some extent. There are lots of teams in the World Cup that would would absolutely adore to have those choices. But it brings its own jeopardy and it brings its own pressure because I think if you look at if you look at a lot of the leading European nations actually going into the tournament, there are big questions over selection. You know, you look at France, they've got a wonderful backup potentially to Karim Benzema in Olivier Giroud. But is Giroud going to be able to cope mentally with being that backup when he's been the number one for so long? Mm. Can you fit in Griezmann, Mbappe and Kunku, you know, all of these forward options? Also, who's going to play in defence for France? Then you look at Spain, uh, and I don't think anybody's sure what the best eleven is going to be for Spain, really. Germany have these selection issues. And there's loads of pressure on Gareth Southgate for England mm. because... Nobody seems to agree with the 11 that he picks. And, uh, you know, Harry Maguire was booed the other day in the lineup by his own fans. So having that depth is a great thing, but it does also bring uh, a lot of pitfalls and a lot of pressure. True. Uh, One more question on players before we get to your predictions. Thomas Muller, um, obviously 33 years old. Is this his last World Cup? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think even he, the ultimate competitor, won't necessarily be going in four years' time. I wouldn't rule him out of the Euros, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being, of course, a home European championship, he'd be desperate to sign off, maybe, in that way. The thing about Muller that y- you have to look at, really, is is he still contributing? And the answer is yes. Yeah. He contributed 18 assists for Bayern last season. He's still a massive part of what Bayern do. Uh, He got a goal and an assist uh, against Leverkusen the other night. And he still has that fire. He still has that hunger to perform. He's never been a player blessed with incredible pace. So I don't think that's a big issue. Physically, he's still fine. Mm -hmm. So he could go on to the next World Cup, but I'd be surprised. My gut feeling is if he can stay in the national team picture for a couple more years... I think that home Euros in 2024 is going to be when he bows out. 
for sure. So let's talk about predictions, right? I mean, we've, we've talked about a very difficult Group E. We've talked about a big challenge from Spain coming out of this group. What are your predictions for Germany uh, going into this World Cup? Do they make it out of the group? How far do they go? And what would a what would a World Cup victory mean to to the German national team um, and to uh, to its fans? Well, first of all, a victory would be enormous. I think, obviously, as you mentioned right at the top, this is a nation with a proud history. You know, you go back to the miracle of Bern when they beat the tournament favourites, Hungary, in the final in, in 54. You look at the way that they came from behind to beat the Netherlands in 74. These are all moments, you know, Andy Bremer scoring against Argentina in the Italian 90 final. And that Mario Goetze goal against Argentina. The reason I go through all of those is these are still iconic moments that are talked about endlessly in Germany. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, we were um, uh, redoing some halftime highlight shots for the Bundesliga highlight show. And Bastian Schweinsteiger was in the uh, in the picture. And I originally called him former Germany and Bayern midfielder Bastian Schweinsteiger. And my producer said, no, let's call him a World Cup winner. And, you know, that still has a really big cachet. The fact that those players, that generation won the World Cup. So it would be enormous if Germany were to win it again. I think they'll get out the group. I think they are a team that could go all the way. I feel like there are seven or eight teams that could go all the way. I think it's a wide open World Cup. Um, Brazil and Argentina are obviously very, very dangerous. I think you've got wild cards like Denmark, who I think could surprise a few people just as they did at the Euros. In terms of what the people expect, they want a team that competes. They want a team that plays good football and they want a team that competes. I think if Germany were to get to the semi-finals at least... That's what I think people would expect. And if they fall flat in the semis, then I think that would be seen as a decent tournament. Great stuff. Kevin, thank you for joining us uh, to help preview Germany as they head to Qatar to uh, challenge for the World Cup out of Group E. All the best to you, and we look forward to having you back again soon. Cheers, guys. And special thanks again to Kevin Hatchard for joining us on the show. Next up, we were joined by Dan Orlowitz from Japan Times to talk about Japan as they had to face Germany for their opening match of the 2022 World Cup. So without further ado, the Dan Orlowitz interview. And joining us now on This Week in Football to help us preview Japan in Group E, it is Dan Orlowitz from Japan Times. Dan, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you back to preview uh, Japan as they go to the 2022 World Cup. I know we asked you this four years ago, but I'm going to ask it again. Uh, what is your tie to Japanese football and covering Japanese football? Uh, Joe, Roberto, thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to be back. I mean, I've lived here, I guess I would have said 11 years uh, the last time I was on, and now it's 15, getting close to 16. I've been writing about Japanese football uh, for about as long. Uh, I've spent the last four years working at the Japan Times as our head football writer and, and covering a bunch of other sports in the meantime. And uh, yeah, I just sort of grew up. I, I came into the game mostly through Japan. And uh, this is uh, where my passion for the sport has grown. And certainly you would say that over the last, you know, four years as of the last time that we spoke, it's really been kind of an evolution of the Japanese side. Obviously, when we spoke four years ago, this was a Japanese side that had went to the round of 16 of Russia to um, at the World Cup over there in Russia, narrowly losing to to Belgium in that 
dramatic round of 16 game. But then obviously the evolution of them participating in other tournaments, playing in the Asian Cup, finishing as runners-up, losing to the host, uh, the, the, the host of this World Cup in Qatar back in 2019, playing in the Copa America as well in Brazil, and has undergone through a, a qualifying process that you would say has been kind of... Up and down, you would say. I think it's been kind of a, a certain ride of them, obviously, you know, definitely finishing second right behind Saudi Arabia by just one point. But nevertheless, Dan, I just want your thoughts on how you have assessed really this Japanese side under uh, Moriyasu, the manager, and just, you know, how have you seen it heading into this World Cup in Qatar? Uh, well, I think we, we do need to put 2018 into some context, which is that shortly before the tournament, uh, Japan had fired the head coach, Vahid uh, Halihaljic, and replaced him uh, with Akira Nishino very quickly be before uh, Russia. And we had very low expectations, as I think you'll remember from our chat, and they went on and, and surprised us and hit Colombia uh, when they least expected that opener and then went on to uh, get through the group and then nearly do it against Belgium until they forgot how to defend. And this qualifier cycle has been weird. I think just the pandemic made it weird. Uh, 2019, you, you did have the Asian Cup, you did have the Copa America, uh, and then you had two years sort of in the wilderness. Uh, what this cycle has been marked by is head coach Hajime Moriyasu, uh, who was previously head coach at Sanfrecce Hiroshima, especially back in their golden era when they won three league titles. He was supposed to lead the sort of generational transition because he wasn't only coaching the senior team, but he was in charge of the Olympic team. And so the idea was that he would lead the under-23s, play them at the Olympics, and then bring them into the senior picture. And that obviously didn't happen as planned because the Olympics were postponed by a year. Uh, so that was weird. Uh, you had a qualifying process that featured a lot of closed door games, uh, reduced attendance, uh, all the travel issues, which had a massive impact on the players. Uh, I spoke to Maya Yoshida as part of a panel a few months ago, and he talked just about the, the strain and, and the physical uh, struggles that the players had to endure because he's flying back and forth from Europe through Singapore, through Japan, having to stay overnight in Russia, all these weird things. And yes, at the end of it, uh, Japan finished second in Group B, uh, but they did pretty well after a couple uh, initial losses in the final group of qualifying. And they got it done uh, with their backs against the wall. Uh, they got the results they needed and they qualified. And really, once if you've qualified, it doesn't matter where you finish in the group. Uh, that That's sort of irrelevant. So now we're here uh, again in one of the toughest groups in the tournament. And now the fun begins. And and you look at their their qualification road leading up to this group. I mean, beating Saudi Arabia 2-0 Arabia at home. Uh, obviously beating Australia, who has always been uh, one of the giants, uh, you know, in football, beating them twice in this qualification process, I think is, you know, speaks volumes for them. But going into the group stage here, going into group E, where they're going to have to, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough road. You know, Spain, you've got Germany and, you know, from our American perspective, this Costa Rican side is probably one of the weaker Costa Rican sides we've seen in recent memory. 
Um, how do you assess this group, especially given that uh, Japan does have a little bit of familiarity with these teams? They've faced Germany a couple times. Uh, they've faced Costa Rica five times, which is I think is to their benefit. And then obviously they've, sp- they've faced um, J- uh, Spain only once. How do you see this group playing out for them? I, I think that this group presents a lot of challenges, both immediate and in, in terms of perception, because if Japan crash out, you can always say, well, of course, they were against two former World Cup champions. Of course, it's a hard group to get through. But there are scenarios in which they can get through to the round of 16. And I think that some of those scenarios are realistic. I think it's a win against Costa Rica and then you get a draw against either Spain or Germany. You just get one point somewhere, and you hope you aren't beaten too badly by the other team and that your goal difference is favorable. And that's sort of the easiest path to get to the round of 16. Uh, but, of course, the the fun path would be that Japan actually takes it to these big teams and maybe gets a win, maybe gets a result. I mean... We didn't have high expectations against Colombia, and then that red card comes out in the first 10 minutes. So you know, in a World Cup, really anything can happen. Yeah, and, and that's kind of one of the points that I think a lot of us have to to really make. And really speaking to any of those countries that are deceived underdogs in whatever group that they're in, is like when it comes to the World Cup, it really is kind of everyone is playing at, a, at an equal level, like playing in the expectations of wanting to do well. And, you know, you can't underestimate anyone because they're going to go at their strongest now looking at this Japanese side obviously we look at the team as a whole and and certainly it's kind of been a transitional team and change looking at some of the players that they have obviously I think we know the experience of the likes of Eiji Kawashima in goal uh, Nagatomo in defense with uh, the captain Maya Yoshida but obviously some other players that are coming up with the likes of uh, Takumi Miyamino obviously who's done so well at Liverpool now at Monaco the likes of a Takufusa Kubo playing in Sociedad in Spain and, you know, numerous, numerous players across Europe, uh, Dan. So I just want your assessment of how you view this group of players for this World Cup. And and also, hey, maybe some other players that maybe a lot of people haven't been able to be familiar of that could indeed make an impact at this World Cup. If you look at where Japan's player pool is in terms of depth, I think that this is the strongest player pool that Japan has ever had, period, because you have around 50 or 60 Japanese players in Europe playing first division football, uh, not just at you know your smaller sort of B or C tier UEFA countries, but in legit Champions League, Europa League nations, Germany, Belgium, Portugal, France, Spain, uh, England, Scotland, you know, the, the, these are top-tier leagues, and these players aren't just in the squad, but they're starting, and they're wearing the captain's armband, and they're getting it done. You have Wataru Endo, uh, who is the captain at Stuttgart, and very likely uh, Japan's next captain after Maya Yoshida retires. You have... Hiroki Ito, who's his teammate at Stuttgart, who's coming up, and he's uh, still young, but he's getting uh, the the, the trust. He's getting that level of trust in the Bundesliga, uh, and he has the potential to be a national team star. In midfield and and up front, you have the Celtic trio 
of Rayo Hatate, Kyogo Furuhashi, and Daisen Maida, who were instrumental in them winning the league last season and getting that club back to the Champions League. And now uh, you, you have Rayo Hatate taking on Luka Modric in a you know, Champions League game against when they're playing Real Madrid, and he's looking good uh, in, in his first appearance on a stage at that level. So you have the players, the, the, the elements are there. It's just a question of can Hajime Moriyasu mold those elements into something cohesive in time for Qatar and and put all the pieces together in a way that makes sense. And that's what we're sort of looking at, because if you look at the midfielders and if you look at the, the forwards, they don't really have a lot of caps between them. Nagatomo and, Ma- and Yoshida uh, both have over 100 caps. Kawashima is almost there with 95, but the experience in this squad I mean, the squad is we're looking at at it for the uh, upcoming friendlies against the U.S. and Ecuador, uh, and in general, it, this has been a transition. So we are still waiting to see. Well, will everything fit together? And uh, the, you know, the magic of the World Cup is that we don't quite know until we see it. You know, I was going to say, Dan, you, you pull out Kawashima. You know, uh, you you also pull out Nagatomo, and you and you pull out Yoshida. And this is a pretty young side um, moving forward in the in the tournament. So it's 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 going to be interesting seeing how the the older statesmen of the team lead the young players not only into this World Cup but you know qualifying for twenty twenty six as well. Which you know leads me into my prediction uh, part of the program because they've got a tough challenge here, and I think they're going to need all that experience that those players bring. Because like we said earlier, you know you've got Spain, you've got Germany, previous World Cup champions, um, and, and you've also got Costa Rica. Where do you see this um, this Japanese side finishing in this group? Do you think they even make it out of this group? I mean, it's not unheard of. You know, Spain and Germany have been eliminated in the group stages. So what do you think of uh, their chances this year? I would put their current chances at about 30% of getting out of the group. I mean, I think that we all, everyone who covers Japan at this level, you want to believe uh, you don't not not necessarily to be a, a homer. I mean, I think that that exists to some extent, but you do want to believe that this side is capable of greatness. And the the JFA has set a goal of, of reaching the quarterfinals. And I'll I'll talk to people who are are I respect as colleagues and as as experts, and they say no, that's that's silly because this this team has the, the capability, the potential to do so much more. And I think that the, and they're being underrated. So there, there's a lot of people whose opinions I respect saying that there is a team capable of winning the whole thing. And I think that if Japan can get to the quarterfinals, if they can finally get that monkey off their back and and show that they're capable of, of doing it, there's, there's no... There's no upper ceiling uh, to what they can potentially do. I think that if you can get to the quarterfinals, you can talk about getting to the semifinals and to the final. Uh, the, the question is whether this squad will be able to get that far. And right now, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a little doubtful because it is at face value a very difficult ask to get through this group and to finish top two. But the potential is there. And I want to focus on that potential rather than the, the reality of the challenge, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and leading into my final question, um, because of the struggle that Group E is going to be for Japan, giving those giants that are paired with them, 
what would what would meaning what would winning this World Cup or even advancing out of this group at this point, given the given the struggle and the thirty percent that you put them at, what would it mean for um, you know football in Japan? What would it mean for many of these young players um, who are European based, but certainly um, on on decent sized clubs that might even get a chance if they shine here, an opportunity to move forward into bigger clubs? And what would it mean for the people of Japan in general? Let's put aside the question of them winning, because, of course, you know, winning a World Cup is winning a World Cup. But I think that if you have to put Japan's past three uh, round of 16 appearances in context here. And, and I would even say that if they can get out of this group, uh, it would be the greatest accomplishment in the history of the national team. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of agree with you. Because I think that if you can get if you can get past Spain and Germany, if you can even if you're finishing second, even if you're finishing with four points and a, a fair play point tiebreaker, uh, which is basically what they did, uh, you know, in the last World Cup, if you can get out of this group, then that's you've killed a giant to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that if you look at at past World Cup groups, you know. Japan got the job done, but the, our opponents in the group phase have never have not always been sexy, and that's that that's not to disrespect all the opponents that we've had over time, but we've never had a group with two World Cup champions. So this is, I think, in many ways, the test that we've been waiting for, uh, and how Japan performs in this test will be. Um, a, a judgment on the program over the last 30 years because this is this is our seventh straight World Cup appearance. Uh, it is no longer special for Japan to qualify for a World Cup. This is where the program is meant to be. Uh, it's now about how far can it go. And and I couldn't agree with you more. You know, getting to the the knockout stages would mean that they've basically eliminated a giant and one of the favorites, I think for the world cup. So it'd be an, an incredible accomplishment. Dan, I, I want to thank you for joining us um, and helping us break down Japan as they head out to Qatar to face these giants in group E all the best to you and uh, good luck to Japan as they head out to Qatar for 2022. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, hopefully we can uh, talk after the tournament and uh, see how wrong or right I was. And special thanks again to Dan Orlowitz for joining us on the show. Next up, we were joined by Rick Sharma, sports journalist for AFP, to preview Spain as they head to Group E of the 2022 World Cup. So without further ado, the Rick Sharma interview. And joining us now on This Week in Football, Spanish sports journalist with the AFP, Rick Sharma. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us and helping us break down Spain for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Um, let's get started with your ties to covering Spanish football. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, yeah, I have been in Spain for close to nine years. I think it's nine years in January. So I've been following not only the Spanish national team, but sort of day in, day out. It's more Barca, Real Madrid, Atletico. That's, that's the teams that I cover mainly. Unless there's anything exciting going on with Valencia or Sevilla or, or Betis or other sides like that. Been here for, yeah, so close to a decade. Enjoying the life out here. I came for one year. I thought I'd go back after one year, being able to speak perfect Spanish. That didn't happen. I didn't. I didn't learn perfect Spanish, and I didn't go back. So I'm still here, uh, but enjoying it. It's it's too good of a life to give up to, to leave Spain for me. And certainly, obviously, you come at a time where obviously Spain, you know, 
we're now finally in the seat of the big powerhouses in world football. Obviously, their history has always been the, the team of underachievers, and they end up winning the World Cup for the first time back in 2010 with that great team headed by Vicente del Bosque. You know, fast forward now eight years ago when we talk about the last time they were at the World Cup, they finished into the round of 16, not after some controversy where they had to ma- fire the manager, Julian Lopetegui, right before the eve of the tournament, and then Fernando Hierro coming in. But they did get uh, uh, bounced out into the round of 16. Now they come into this back to the World Cup under manager Luis Enrique, who we definitely know during his time, not just as a player, but obviously as a manager, what he did at Barcelona. So I just want your thoughts on how you have assessed Spain over the last four years and really kind of this uh, this vibe and the mood really for, for Spanish fans, players, uh, to this World Cup. Well, the mood isn't hugely positive in Spain. And part of that is is due to the sort of inevitable Madrid-Barca divide. And when Luis Enrique is the Spain coach, there's a lot of people who instantly aren't going to be happy with the Spanish national team because they support Real Madrid and they hate Luis Enrique. So even before we get to the fact that he he makes a lot of, of sort of controversial decisions, that certainly not decisions that everyone agrees with, even before any of that, even if he made the most basic, sort of most reasonable decisions he could, I'm sure there'd be plenty of people in, in Spain who weren't as happy with the national team as, as maybe they would you know prefer to be if a, if a different person was in charge. But yeah, the qualifying campaign was was fine. It wasn't spectacular. I think that there's you know a lot of a lot of trouble, like you mentioned the last World Cup with, with Lopetegui leaving sacks just before it kicked off. And then, of course, Luis Enrique being in charge, but then having to sort of leave because his daughter, sadly, uh, had a, a type of cancer and she passed away. And then he came back and replaced Robert Moreno, who didn't want to leave, controversially. I mean, obviously, everyone is on Luis Enrique's side over this, this issue that happened because he had to leave for really sad circumstances. And then, of course, he, he decided to come back and that was it. I can also see, I was speaking to someone the other day about this, I can see the thing from, from Moreno's point of view is his one chance and he didn't get to have it and he thought he might, even though I think it's fair that that listener he came back in. So I made sort of all that sort of bad blood and controversy off the, off the pitch. On it, Spain have really haven't been spectacular. They've had a, a, the occasional result where they've impressed, like they, they absolutely spanked Germany 6-0 about a couple of years ago now, I think. And, and that was kind of Luis Enrique's Spain that everybody would like Spain to be like, but off, quite often they don't have those goals in them. They, they create a lot of chances, but they don't finish. And part of that comes down to the fact that there's not, and I'm sure we'll get on to talking about the squad, but they don't have a, a world-class striker in their, in their squad. And that's, well, it's been the case since maybe Fernando Torres played for Spain, when, of course, they, you know, he helped them win the Euros and the World Cup back in, in 2010. Since then, there's there's been you know they nationalised Diego Costa from Brazil, and and that's as close as they got to having a sort of top quality striker in the team. But even he really struggled in his few games with Spain. So that that's kind of the big issue, and it's it's remained the case. And, and sometimes they can be accused of of defensive slip ups as well, which we've seen a, a quite a lot. I mean, even the goalkeeper in Simon is a likes to play with his feet, as you expect. That the style is exactly what you would expect from Spain, especially with Luis Enrique in charge, but. You know, Simon makes makes big errors at the back too, and and so do some of the defenders. Like Eric Garcia makes them for his club, Barcelona makes them for his country when he's picked too. But because the style is non-negotiable, as as people with Barcelona DNA and them like to put it, it's uh, you just have to accept it. And I think a lot of a lot of fans, Spain fans, look at look at the squad and think, well, why isn't, for example, the defender like Nacho a Real Madrid in the squad? 
because whenever he plays for Real Madrid, even though he's absolutely not a star name, whenever he plays, he, he does well. He's very solid. He fills in. And the fact is, it just wouldn't fit the style that Luis Enrique wants to play. So he's, he's upset about half the fans and the other half are excited, but you know, nervous because you never really know what you're going to get with Spain in terms of end product at kind of either end of the pitch. So, Rick, I'd like to jump in here now and take a look at this group, uh, group, uh, group E, where we have the only group that has two World Cup champions in it in uh, Spain and Germany. Spain opened the competition on November 23rd against Costa Rica, a team that uh, that they've never faced at the World Cup, but they've played a couple of friendlies against. Then they face off Germany, which is certainly going to be one of the marquee matchups of the group stages overall. Um, and these two teams have faced each other four times at the World Cup, but most recently, like you had mentioned, in 2010, they faced each other, Spain winning a, a semifinal match against them, 1-0, on their way to the World Cup title that they won in 2010. And then they're going to close it out against uh, Japan, a team that uh, they've only faced in a friendly Back in 2001, there's absolutely zero familiarity between these two teams. So how does this group shake out for you, and how big is that Spain-Germany match on the 27th? How important is that to this Spanish national team? Oh, that Yeah, it's absolutely huge. I mean, that should be the game which effectively decides, if everything goes to, to what you expect, it decides the group, the, the group winners, the group runners-up. But the truth is, Germany aren't really arriving at the World Cup in, in particularly great form either and I think that, that teams like you know Costa Rica and Japan will, will think they can this is a good opportunity for them to take take points off of Spain and Germany compared to in, in previous World Cups. I I still expect Spain to well Spain or Germany to win the group. I I will say Spain because I do like Luis Enrique. I'm one of the ones who's who's more on his side and I think that he he's got his game plan and he, and he sticks to it and it, like we said it could could result in a lot of, of crazy things happening like for example in the 5-3 win they had over Croatia at the Euros uh, in 2021 when it was played we saw we saw the games and sort of explode like that or they can go the other way sometimes it's like the original the first match of the, the Euros where they drew with Sweden in, in one of the worst games I think most people can remember nil-nil so but yeah I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with with Spain to top the group and I expect I don't expect that any of the matches will be a walk unless you know it's one of those games where Spain create 15, 20 chances as they do, and on this occasion, they beat XG and they and they, and they, they level XG and, and get the the goals that the chances create, which is, doesn't usually happen. But if it does, then it wouldn't be surprising if Spain managed to rack up a, a big win against against Costa Rica, for example. But I expect, especially as the first game in the tournament, that to be a, a kind of tense, tight affair where Costa Rica are just looking to keep them at bay, basically. So certainly, obviously, for Spain, their main level of success will definitely have to be on these players. And I think Luis Enrique definitely has a, a, a embarrassment of riches when you look at talent, when you look at the likes of, obviously, if you even go to the veterans like uh, Jordi Alba, Danny Carvajal, Cesar Cueta, uh, Sergio Busquets, the captain, even Koke as well, 30 years old. And then you mix in, you know, that new experience with the likes of a, of a Pedri, a Gavi, uh, Rodri, and many other players who are on this side. It's, a, it's a, going to be a really interesting um, headache, I would say, for, for Luis Enrique to pick out this best side. So I'm curious to ask you, you know, what do you feel is indeed Spain's best side for this World Cup? And of course, you know, you talk about the lack of a, a real world-class uh, striker, you know, ever since the likes of Fernando Torres. And I think the only one that is really going to go out there and, and try to, to make a statement is someone like Alvaro Morata, who obviously we know, looking at his career, can be a hot and cold player. But 
if it's not going to be Morata, who is going to be that standout player that Spain have to look out to for to, to be successful at this World Cup? To answer the first half of your question, I'm, I think you're going to have to get Luis Enrique on the pod to, to talk about it because it's the, the Spain side that I would say is Spain's best side. I'm sure at least three or four or five of those players won't be on the airplane. Won't, won't, they won't be going to Qatar because Luis Enrique, for whatever reason, makes, makes decisions, well, I say for whatever reason, for the reason that he doesn't think they fit the system. There's players like Iago Aspas, for example, who's been the top Spanish goal scorer in La Liga. I think it's four of the last six seasons. And yet there's no way he's going to the World Cup unless, you know, Morata falls injured. A bunch of other players fall injured too. Luis Enrique has, has the players he likes. Of the, of the squad that I anticipate that he takes, it's, it's a little bit easier to sort of name, name a team. I mean, but then it's, I find it hard because I don't know whether I'm naming to you the team that I think he should play or the team that I can see him playing more often. Which, you know, Luis Enrique is, is a very good coach. He's a very good tactician. He knows what he's doing. And he knows better than me. So if I, if I tell you more, more that rather than the team that I think is best, it might make sense. With Unai Simon, of course, he will be in goal. He's, he's leaned on Unai Simon. David De Gea is no longer in the picture. He might, might go to the tournament. I don't know about that. But he's, he's not going to you know, be Unai Simon starting. And then Pedri and Gavi seem pretty non-negotiable. And Busquets in midfield. So that'll be the midfield trio. And then left back's a bit harder. I'm sorry, I'm going in a sort of uh, scattergun approach to this team, but it, I'm just it's just thinking about which players are nailed for Luis Enrique. And so okay, we'll go with in fact not left back, we'll go with attack, Morata. And then two wingers. He likes Sarabia a lot, and he likes Ferran Torres a lot. And his daughter is dating Ferran Torres, so I don't know if that's going to play into his thinking about. No, yeah. So we'll go with Sarabia and Ferran Torres either side of Morata up front. We've got the Barcelona trio midfield. The centre of defence is, is, is a lot harder. I'm not sure what the, the best of the Spain is there. Or, or I'm not even sure. This, the reason it's confusing is I'm not even sure that Luis Enrique knows what his best defensive partnership is. He likes Pau Torres. He likes Eric Garcia. So we'll, I'm going to I'm gonna say he'll go with those two. But I, I bet it changes a lot. I mean, I'm Eric Laporte was, a, was recently nationalised as well. Spain have been sort of signing a lot, a lot of players to Diego Costa as well in the in that kind of regard. But he's been injured all season until very recently for Man City, so I don't know if he will start this tournament. We'll go with, we'll go with uh, Paul Torres and Eric Garcia, and then left-back Gaia or Jordi Alba seem, seem to be the first two. But honestly, there's about seven or eight really good Spanish left-backs, and Jordi Alba's my even first choice for Barca. It's, it's Alejandro Balde playing for Barca, and he's been great, but I would be surprised if he was on the plane. So listen, if he hasn't, hasn't used him, so he, he'll stick to what he knows, I think, in that regard. So... Maybe he'll go with Jordi Alba back. And then right back, the one Real Madrid player that, uh, that sort of has a, a big chance of going, apart from Marco Asensio, who's another one of the wingers you could use. Danny Carvajal. So we'll say Danny Carvajal, right back. That is in a very weird order, the Spanish national team that Luis Enrique should or, or I think might play for not most of the games, but more often than not, those players will, will feature for Spain at the World Cup. And in terms of the second point, Maybe Morata. He's, he's in good form with Atletico Madrid. Pedri, to me, is the best player the Spanish national team have. He's, he's absolutely brilliant. Looking forward to, to watching him tonight. I don't know if he mentioned on the pod or not. I can't remember at the start. We are recording this from camp now ahead of a, a Barca game. And so, uh, yeah, Pedri is uh, the one that I think the world will have their eyes on too because he was so good at the Euros as well. So, Rick, I want to jump in and get your predictions uh, for, for Spain here. I know that we've already predicted that Spain would top the group uh, in, in Group E, 
but uh, and that would mean that they would potentially face either Belgium or Croatia out of Group F moving forward, which will certainly be another highlight match to watch in this World Cup. But for you, um, obviously, a 2010 champions, still a formidable side. I know the lack of a true number nine is going to be something that Luis Enrique will have to overcome. But what are your predictions for this team? Um, how far do you think they can go? And ultimately, if they did win the World Cup, a second World Cup title, which only a, a few teams have ever done, what would that mean to the Spanish national team, the Spanish fans, and, and the country of Spain in general? Yeah, it would, it would mean a huge amount. And the thing is, like I was saying, was, you know, half people aren't really happy with the team going into this tournament. As soon as they get to, so they get to the semifinals, everyone will be waving Spanish flags, and they'll be, everyone will be on side again. Even if it's happened at the Euros, we saw it. You know, there was so much doubt, so much, so many complaints about Luis Enrique, and then they got all the way to the semifinals, and everyone was like, "Oh yeah," and then they got knocked out by Italy. But it would mean a lot. And, and how far can they go? I mean, I think I'm going to say they'll top the group. I, I, I back them to beat to beat Belgium in the next round. Quarterfinals onwards, it's, it's it's pretty hard to tell. It sounds like fence sitting, and maybe it is, but that's just the nature of the beast of Luis Enrique Spain. You don't know whether they're going to absolutely smash Germany 6-0 or they're going to you know, struggle to beat Kosovo. So it's, 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 it's very hard to, to predict where they're going to finish. I will say, oh, I'm going to say semi-finals, but that maybe I'm being a bit generous. It might be cool. I don't know who they're going to play. I haven't done my homework in the quarterfinals. You know, if, they, if they beat Belgium in the last 16, who would they, be, who would they get in the quarters? If it's, if it's a team they, they could beat, then I'll say there's semis. If it's Brazil or Argentina, Luis Enrique himself actually has pointed out that Brazil and Argentina are the two favourites by a long shot for this tournament, then I expect they'll go out. But any other team I would, I would back them to be. This is certainly one of the closest World Cups I think that we're going to see in a in a long time. Rick, thank you for joining us on the show to preview Spain as they head to Group E of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. All the best to you and best of luck to the Spanish national team and they make as they make their journey to the uh, to the title. Thanks for having me, guys. And hopefully it's not too noisy for you. And special thanks again to Rick Sharma for joining us on the show. Last but not least, we were joined by Andrea Yanez from Una Hora con la H to preview Costa Rica as they head to face Spain for their opening match of the 2022 World Cup. So without further ado, the Andrea Yanez interview. And joining us now on This Week in Football to preview Costa Rica as they head to Group E of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, Andrea Yanez, Central American football journalist. Andrea, thanks for joining us on the show. It is always great to speak with you. I want to talk about your roots in covering Central American and CONCACAF football in general. Hi, Joe. Hi, Roberto. Nice to be with, here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm very happy to be able to talk about Costa Rica, the only Central American team that is going to a World Cup again. Um, it, it's a big achievement for them going to their third World Cup in a consecutive form. So it, I am very happy to to talk about them. And, well, I have a long history of covering all Central American teams, uh, national teams also, um obviously the the leagues the teams and everything about that and Costa Rica is a big part of that Central American soccer football history so I'm very happy to be here and, and discuss that with you well certainly for Costa Rica they kind of seem to be a side that I feel like maybe you know for maybe those that do follow CONCACAF they're not really a side that I think is definitely hated per se and you know obviously I think that stems back and I'm looking at their history now obviously we remember Costa Rica for their run in the 2014 World Cup where they got out of that group of death with Uruguay, Italy, and England going all the way to the quarterfinals for the first time. 
Fast forward four years later, they go back to the one in Russia, and they were in another tough group and unfortunately finished off with just one point. Now they come back to this World Cup, like you said, for the third straight time, uh, going it from the playoff, having the same record as the United States did in the in the uh, the octagonal, you know, finishing with four uh, seven wins, four draws, and three losses. But they did have to go to an intercontinental playoff, defeating New Zealand 1-0 thanks to an early goal from Joel Campbell. So it's been kind of a, an interesting ride for this Costa Rican side. How have you assessed kind of how the mood in Costa Rica is so far, uh, making this back to a World Cup now under uh, the manager, Luis Fernando Suarez? It was a surprise. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest. It was a surprise because Costa Rica was coming out of, uh, of going to the World Cup in, in, in Russia. They did not do well. And everyone was talking about the generation, about the change. They didn't have a coach still. So it was kind of a, a, a thing that everyone in, in Central America was thinking. Costa Rica is not that dangerous in this World Cup qualifying. And it surprised everyone when they began... They began um, uh, not so good during the octagonal. So when Costa Rica began not that good, Honduras began well, and Panama began well also, people were saying, oh, the real battle is with Honduras and Panama. Costa Rica is going to be out of the World Cup, and it's going to be they're going to be fighting for the last place. But then came in Luis Fernando Suarez and changed that. He found that balance between having experienced players that are in, still in the team that are important and having young, bringing young, in young players that wanted to participate and wanted to, to develop and wanted to, to go to the World Cup. So you were talking about the record. That is amazing because even when, when the, last, uh, the last matches were, were going to be played, the, the most important matchup was that Costa Rica and Panama. And that is where Costa Rica, um, for me, punched their ticket uh, to the to the plane, obviously, but to the World Cup because they beat the rival that was favorite to go to the World Cup because they did they had good results they they had a good a good manager they had a good showing but it wasn't enough and Costa Rica I think a big 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 responsibility of them going in the, uh, to the World Cup is is their their manager Luis Fernando Suarez is going to be la- his third World Cup so I think he's a good 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 coach and it's amazing accomplishment for them to get to this World Cup uh given that they 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 were one of the lowest scoring teams in CONCACAF qualifying in the octagonal. However, they were excellent defensively. And then to go and beat New Zealand in the neutral site in Qatar, this is a, one of the few teams that does have experience uh, playing in Qatar at this point. But now we, we look at the group that they were drawn into. Group B is a very, very difficult group where they're drawing uh, Germany, Spain, and Japan in this particular group, they opened the uh, the tournament on the 23rd against Spain, uh, a match, a team that they've played a few times in in friendly matches. Uh, the only World Cup experience they have against any of these teams is actually against Germany, opening the 2006 World Cup against them. Um, how do you feel Costa Rica will handle this group? I mean, this is possibly one of the one of the groups of death if you think about it. With all the with Spain and Germany, the only group that has two World Cup champions in it. How does uh, how do you see Costa Rica faring in this uh, particular group? Uh, listen, Joe, it's gonna be hard for them to talk about qualifying to the next round. But listen, I think they can be a dark horse because um, Costa Rica is, like you mentioned, it's 
a very good team when it comes to defending because that is Luis Fernando Suarez's specialty. So they showed it during the octagonal and they showed it against New Zealand that they can be a team that can grind it up and hold to a result, hold to a tie, hold to a, a, a one-nil lead like they did against New Zealand. So I think that is going to be the basis of Costa Rica if they want to get... Um, Uh, get through, get a, get high hopes of getting through the to the group. It's gonna be difficult, as you said. It's the the two world champions and Japan is it's hard for them. But um, I think the calendar also is not that it's not that bad. Saying that because they start with Spain, they get Japan next, and they get Germany. So they play against the for me the most difficult team to the last so maybe that's beneficial for them and talking about uh the record yes i i still remember on 2006 i was still young i'm not that old <laughs> my age but i still remember uh that that game when germany played costa rica the opening match and and costa rica didn't shy they they ended up losing but when chope scored a couple of goals in that matchup so one of the teams in concacaf that is gonna be a problem And it's it, and especially with the manager that they have now, the players that have already played in in a good World Cup like Joel Campbell, Celso Borges, and Brian Reese, Keylor Navas are going to be important for this team. So I think they can surprise everyone. I don't know if they're making it up out of the group, but they can surprise Spain or Japan for me. So obviously, you know, going into some of these players like you had mentioned, you know, I think this kind of is really the last you know, dance basically of, of a lot of these players, like the likes of Brian Ruiz, the captain who's, you know, 144 caps, the likes of Aceso Borges, Kedar uh, Navas obviously becoming one of the best goalkeepers in the world and certainly one of the best of his generation for the last decade or so. You know, Joel Campbell is getting the goals uh, as, you know, 25 goals in 118 games. You know, this is a side that I think, you know, is definitely um, in a way of a, a transition when you think about it, especially what happens you know, after this tournament. But, you know, how have you assessed kind of this team as a whole that Luis, uh, Luis Fernando Suarez has to has to deal with? And, and really, I think, who is the ones that do need to step out if Costa Rica are going to to have a chance to, to really do well in this tournament? Well, he has, he has been doing a good job um, of managing the young players with the more experienced players. As we talked, Brian Ruiz... He's he's historic for Costa Rica. He's one of the best uh, that ever played for the for for the nation. But he has taken his role as an experienced man, as a man that sometimes have to come has to come out of the bench to play and to help the team. So I think in, uh, Luis Fernando Suarez has identified how these experienced players can uh, uh, can bring something good and so, and adds uh, something to this team when they most need it. And he, I also want to talk about the young players that he had because uh, during the octagonal, he made, he brought a couple of young players like this, uh, Francisco Benete, who's, who now, after he made his debut with the national team, got, got bought by Sunderland in, in England. And he's developing and he's one of the stars. He's young, a 20-year-old guy. He's so young and he has now experience with the national team. They played two friendlies against Korea and against uh, Uzbekistan in the last uh, FIFA day. And the guy scored two goals. So I think that is a testament that Luis Fernando Suarez and also the stars like Brian Ruiz and Joel Campbell have read 
that this team needs to work together between moments of players being young and inexperienced coming in, but players being experienced and knowing when they have to come in, knowing when to lead. And uh, let me tell you about Keylor Navas also during the octagonal, people were mad at him because he didn't come for some of the games and he came then for others. So uh, that was something that Luis Fernando Suarez has had to manage too because people were mad at Keylor because they said that Keylor preferred to stay playing with his team in Europe than to come for the national team. Of course, Keylor has, was having a battle last, last season for, for the number one starting spot against Donnarumma in PSG. So that it, this team has made it he, uh, through heat to here, but they have overcome many, many obstacles, many, many obstacles. And I think that is because of the coach and the, the experienced players like Brian Ruiz that know their plays, that know they are not young, that know that they cannot play 90 minutes, but know how to bring maybe that experience and that, uh, that that management that the that the roster needs. So I want to get into the prediction part of of the interview, and you know, especially when you focus on some of these names that we've seen, especially you know, with us being in uh, Concacaf based uh, names like Brian Ruiz, names like Joel Campbell. Uh, obviously, the world knows Kaylor Navas is Celso Borges. Uh, you know, all of these great players. Uh, you know, in really what is what you would consider the twilight of Costa Rican football uh, or the golden age of Costa Rican football, uh, the success that they had in 2014 in Brazil. Can this team recreate that one last time, especially seeing that it might be the last world cup for those players? Um, you know, I'm looking at the list and, you know, Kendall Watson's another one that comes to mind. Um, or is, is this um, something where you're not optimistic about them? And if they did find some form of success, what would that mean for the next generation of Costa Rican stars maybe to come up through the system and, and make a name for themselves? That would be massive if Costa Rica somehow makes it to, 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 the, second, uh, to the other round of the World Cup, makes it out of the group. It would be massive for, for the country, for the players, for, for football there, for the teams, because um, we, we, we are talking about all these names, but they are playing in, most of them are playing in the, in the local league, in the Costa Rican league. Mm. So it would be massive that this group of players in, with the age that they have playing back in their homeland could do something like that. Because let's face it, even in CONCACAF, Central American football is not like uh, viewed that as a great, like it was in the past with Saprisa and yeah. Olympia and all of those good teams that, that, that won and even played the, the club world cup. It's not like that anymore. So it will be huge, huge, huge for, for the country, for the players, for the players getting opportunity. Let's remember in, in 2014, when they had uh, that good run, Keylor Navas went to Real Madrid and Celso Borges, Oscar Duarte, and all of those players that are still in the team went and got chances in Europe. So it will mean a lot for the development, for the future of this young this young generation. It will be massive if they could 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 make it through through the group. It's gonna be hard. Let me tell you, it's gonna be hard. But it will be massive, not only for them as a country, but 
for the region because they are the only, as I said before, they are the only team in team in Central America that that made it through and that made it through the World Cup. You know, and I want to even go a little further because you look at the list of names out of Costa Rican football in terms of the clubs, you know, Saprisa, Alaolense, um, you know, Herediano. These are all teams that have had, you know, reasonable success in CONCACAF Champions League here in North America. And you see kind of a shift lately uh, to a Liga MX MLS based competition. Um, would would success in the world cup here bring maybe some of those clubs especially saprisa who's who's you know world famous would it bring um them back to the table and say hey you know we are we are good enough we are good enough to compete in our region and and this would be uh, you know this would be kind of the launching pad for that exactly exactly mm-hmm. you're a hundred percent right joe because uh people seem to forget even 2000 from 2000 and back not that long ago these teams were were the ones that that were winning everything in concacaf that were dominating in concacaf and dominating in the region that has been lost because of of results because of the growth of mls because of liga mx and and the money that they have and that they invest so costa rica getting through again and demonstrating that you don't need all that like press machine like Mexico has or or the money like the U.S. have, but you need to work in the talent and the dedication and you get through your goal, it will be massive. It will be massive for all these teams. And like I said, all, the majority of the roster is, is playing locally in Costa Rica. So that would be good, good, good for all those teams that their players uh, are going to get looked at and can have the possibility of growing the, the sport in the country more than than it is already is is the number one sport, but growing growing it in the sense that players can begin to go to Europe again like they used to do before. My thoughts exactly. So, Andrea, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Um, all the best to you and the best of luck to Costa Rica as they go to Group E in Qatar of the 2022 World Cup, and uh, we look for great results and uh, we'll look to, forward to having you back again soon. Thank you, guys. I'm glad to to have been here with you. I send all my good vibes to to Costa Rica and Luis Fernando Suarez and all of the players. Hopefully, we'll be here talking about the surprise, the dark horse of the World Cup. And uh, I'm glad you guys invited me to talk about them. And special thanks again to Andrea Yanez for joining us on the show to preview Costa Rica. Roberto, it is prediction time uh, looking at Group E, after having listened to all of our experts, what are your thoughts, my friend? Yeah, it really is. I think, you know, even from hearing all the experts, I still think it kind of is a bit straightforward. Um, you know, I'll start off with fourth place. I think Costa Rica, you know, as great as a side that they are, and, you know, they've always been kind of there as the upsets. I don't think lightning strikes twice for them. I, I really don't. I mean, I think what we saw in 2014 was really a one-off. And certainly, I think when you look at the quality that they play against like Spain, Japan, and and Germany, I think that golf in, in difference will definitely be shown. Um, so I see them finishing in fourth. In third, I mean, I, I really do like this Japanese side. I really do. I think they have some quality players. They are very well disciplined. And they are very well they're a side that could definitely adapt to any sort of match that they can play and definitely pose a surprise. I just don't see them having enough to be able to get enough points to qualify out of the group stage and go into the knockout stage, which leaves Spain and Germany. 
And for me, it's a toss-up. It really is. I mean, that second game between each other um, on the 27th, I think, again, we'll probably decide that group. But I think in this one, I think it's going to have to be Germany that finishes in second. I think this Spain side, you know, the way that they play and the way that Luis Enrique has really um, engulfed this side has really become something extraordinary. You know, I think they've gone, you know, such a remarkable streak of, of the way that they've been playing under him. And I think it shows in, in the talent that they have that it is a young side. Yes, it is a very young side. And maybe we don't know what their best side is, but you can't doubt the quality. And I think the quality that they have just edges Germany just a bit. I mean, it's, it's really, like I said, neck and neck, and it is a toss up. But I think this comes to a point, Joe, where I think goal difference might be the one that decides it between Spain and Germany. But for my bet, I'd say Spain is going to finish in first. Germany in second, Japan in third, Costa Rica in fourth. Yeah, you know, I, I think I've got to agree with you on this one. I think uh, I think for the most part, Costa Rica is going to finish fourth. Uh, they were unimpressive in qualifying out of CONCACAF. Um, they were very good defensively, but just could not find the back of the net. And I think that will come back to haunt them against teams that can score plenty of goals. And, and let's be honest, all three of these teams in the group with them can score goals. So I think ultimately, like you said, Costa Rica fourth, I do agree with that. Picking Japan third here is probably the one uh, pick that makes me sick to my stomach because I really feel like of all the quote-unquote third-place teams we're going to look at in this uh, tournament, this one feels like the one that is is the upset in the making, you know? And, and I don't know which one they would knock off if it's Spain or Germany, but I feel like if, if we're going to get one of these wrong, this is the one we're going to get wrong. Um, I am going to take Japan third, um, but I take that you know, with a pit in my stomach, because if my, if I was betting my house on this, I don't feel comfortable with the bet. Uh, but I agree. Japan third, second place. I do think that this will be Germany's spot. Uh, I, you know, because Germany can run hot and cold, I think against a Spanish side that tends to be a little more organized, um, tends to play a little more freely with the ball, uh, very, very talented in the midfield. And we know many of these matches are won and lost in the midfield. Uh, you know, case in point, Spain, I'm sorry, France four years ago, winning the World Cup with guys like Pogba and N'Golo Kante in the middle. I, I, I think Spain will end up topping this group, and I think they will beat Germany in that matchup in the second uh, match day for them. But uh, but it's going to be close, uh, and, and I think both of these teams will advance uh, on you know based on their talents uh, talent level compared to the other teams in their group but that Japan side really does scare me in this one and I think Spain and Germany should be scared of them as well so again to recap as well Costa Rica fourth Japan third Germany second and Spain topping the group for me with a possible date uh coming up with a uh, group F which we'll be we'll be previewing next so for Kevin Hatchard, or thank you to Kevin Hatchard, Dan Orlowitz, Rick Sharma, and Andrea Yanez for joining us to break down Group E. For my co-host, Mr. Roberto Rojas, I am Joe Ucello. Thanks for listening, and good night.